do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And this is James. And today, obviously, we're going to be talking about the phenomenal film Interstellar by Christopher Nolan, which was actually in development for a while. Steven Spielberg was attached to direct it back in like 2006. He mm -hmm. hired Jonathan Nolan to direct it, I mean, to write the script, but he actually just went on to do other projects instead, and that's when eventually Jonathan Nolan convinced his brother to do it. Yeah, Jonathan Nolan um, wrote the first draft, and then he went on to his TV productions. He did uh, Person of Interest in Westworld and then something else I can't remember. But um, Chris Nolan, I think they were just hanging out one day, and they and he, he told no Chris Nolan about this script in... He was very interested in it, so he read it, and then uh, Chris Nolan loved the idea and the concept of traveling through dimension, traveling through galaxies, and traveling through time um, with the use of a wormhole and, and black holes. And then he, so he took those concepts of the script, but then he changed the script a lot in terms of his own kind of story for it. So he made it more of a personal um film about family especially the relationship between a father and a daughter so um he took a very sci-fi action heavy script and he turned it into a very personal one yeah it's really a lot of it's about love and and these concepts of time and do does love and time does love transcend dimensions kind of like how in the film they describe that gravity can transcend time and dimensions and does love have that same effect in this movie every time i watch it, it gets better each time and I don't understand the hate that Interstellar gets. A lot of people, obviously a lot of people love it. And I relate to that obsession that many viewers have with Interstellar and Chris Nolan's films. But I think there's a stigma against Nolan for some people. And for some reason, they just don't like Interstellar, which is fine. You can like what you like. But this movie, it's a borderline masterpiece in so many different ways. I mean, production elements, the the set design, the, the acting, the, the writing, the cinematography by Hoyt. Everything on this movie is exceptional filmmaking, let alone the strong themes that are involved in the film as well. The best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. You'll get perks like personalized messages, personalized videos, podcast schedules, our daily posts, as well as top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast. And you'll be getting exclusive video content from us as well as exclusive patron giveaway contests. Head on over to our new website, RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, our custom movie posters, and you can also sign up for Patreon there. Yeah, I'm not sure about the dislike for it. It's definitely there. I just, I don't, I don't know why. I think it's a fantastic movie. And it was a big challenge for Nolan because this was his first film post the Dark Knight trilogy. Yes, he did Inception. That was 2010 before yeah, Rises. Before Rises, but... This was like, he's done with the Dark Knight trilogy, so now what's he going to do? And so everyone was very curious, like, what's his first movie post the DC Universe going to be? And I remember when the first trailer came out, I thought it was, it's one of the best trailers I've ever seen. It was so inspiring, kind of reminds me of like the Man of Steel trailer, super inspirational. The music was great. And it was just curious because um, like all Nolan trailers, especially with Tenet, uh, he gives nothing away in the in the marketing and the advertising. He like we'll get into in a little bit. He hides things in the film that doesn't show that don't show up in the marketing either. So uh, you always walk into one of his movies kind of like in having really no concept of what it is or what's going to happen, which is a great thing. Um, I think so many trailers nowadays they you can literally pinpoint the entire story of a movie in trailers nowadays, and like it spoils everything. Uh, and like for example, I saw Sound of Metal. 
And the, the trailer of Sound of Metal ends with this shot of Riz Ahmed with a shaved head. And he's just like staring off with like, he seems to have a peaceful look in his eye. Should we say spoiler alert right Yeah, spoiler now. alert. And then I, I I was like, when I saw the trailer, I'm like, that's probably the last shot of the movie. And then I watched the movie and that was the last shot. Mm-hmm. So I think if when you give away the last shot, because you can put that in the trailer, but it doesn't have to be at the end of the trailer. You know what I mean? Because I realized it was a spoiler because that's how they ended the two minute bit. And I was like, well, that kind of spoiled the ending for me. Yeah, well, I think Nolan has a lot of control over his trailers in terms of not revealing the entire storyline where a lot of studios, they want you to see the storyline so that you're more enticed to come in a way. And they, they're afraid of being mysterious to audiences in a way, I think. They want to show all the cool stuff. Yeah, but I think that's one of the strengths of film marketing is the mystery behind it. And I think this is one of the most anticipated movie I've ever seen because, of course, like you said, coming off the, the Batman trilogy, what's Nolan going to do? obviously like one of our favorite filmmakers and again the trailers are fantastic and if you if you watch this movie it's probably the most unnolan-esque movie for like the first act where it's a very linear sequence yeah. for the first act of the film compared to nolan's other films where he usually starts at the beginning and end at the same time where he's got two different storylines going back and forth and it's really not until coop is out in space and they they leave miller's planet where they have the effect of gaining of losing 23 years of Earth time, that's when we start going cross-cutting back on Earth. Yeah, because, I mean, even in Batman Begins, he's playing around with time. Dark Knight and Rises, obviously, not so much the same way, but you ex- and with Tenet, obviously, he plays with time a, a ton. And so, a, little, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> and so it was refreshing, and it was... Uh, I think what... What the, what makes this movie, like you said, it's different for Nolan, the first act, the first 40 minutes or so, is... Because it just feels really grounded. Usually when you watch a Nolan movie, it's very big and very high concept and just very exciting. And it does get to all those points, but not until later in the film. Whereas the first act of this movie, it's about a family on a farm. Yeah, and usually Nolan will tell you the rules of the environment and the rules of his world in the first couple scenes of a movie or just hints at it, but you don't really get that in this movie because it opens with the flashback of his ship crashing or the, or the dream. And then we're just following this, this life of Coop and his family in this linear storyline until they get to NASA. And then they eventually leaves, leaves earth to go try to find a new home. So it's very different in terms of not showing you a bombastic opening sequence, obviously like tenant interstellar, I mean, tenant inception and dark Knight. Dark Knight Rises, these these wild, amazing, epic opening scenes. And on top of that, uh, I think he this is his only film probably where he j- addresses, uh, you know, concerns about humanity, especially for, for the future of humanity. Well, where Tenet is like that. At the present, the world is dealing with big catastrophes in terms of near future. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a food shortage happening on Earth, and uh, pretty much anything that humans have been trying to grow has just failed, and the only things that... We can grow at the time our, our corn and okra. And the world has abandoned the idea of exploration, the idea of seeking out new answers and solving new problems. And it's focused on just dealing with what's happening in the world. Like they have the, the weather's changed, climate change has really affected this area, especially with these massive dust storms, which have made it very difficult for people to live their lives. And uh, I, I think that Nolan... He's fascinated by not just like what's going to happen in the next couple of generations, but what's going to happen to humanity 
in the next hundreds of years or even thousands of years, which is really fascinating to talk about. Yeah, so the world that this is set in, it's near future. So Donald, played by John Lithgow, he represents us. He's he's millennials. He's that generation grown up. So technically... So he had TikTok. Yeah, so he had TikTok. <laughs> so <laughs> Murph represents like if I had a, a grandchild in the future. So that's that generation. Then the world is there's no more war wars. There's no more armies. And then again, there's like almost no food because okra is dying out. And corn eventually is going to die out. There's, the wheat's gone. Earth is running out of oxygen. Pretty much anyone who needs to be employed there, they're becoming farmers. That's like the new high-class job is becoming a farmer. Trying to produce food for a starving world. Because they didn't run out of television screens or planes, they ran out of food. And this is like a caretaking generation for a world that's dying and trying to come back to life. And I like that Nolan doesn't really sh tell you really what happened to the world or was it a... Yeah, he doesn't a, have to. That's was it a war? Was it climate change? Was it a combination of both? And then we have the... the and people want to ex uh, complain about exposition in Nolan movies. Yeah, it's, it's more fun to think of it yourself and then i love the concept of nasa still being around and nasa being the secret underground society organized organization for the government that's trying to solve the problem of of avoiding the extermination of the human race and i love how cooper mentions that they wanted him they wanted nasa to the government wanted nasa to fly up and scorch the planet earth to try to reset the planet in a way and like i'm assuming they would have people flying in ships waiting for it to heal itself mm -hmm. it's springtime the flowers are blooming the grass is growing it's time to chop those weeds everybody with our sponsor manscape using our coupon code raiders of the lost at checkout you'll get 20 percent off and free shipping at manscape.com over 2 million men are using manscape products including they're incredible. Lawnmower 3.0 Groomer, which has a built-in light. It's like 7,000 RPM. It's waterproof. You can use this in the shower. Manscaped has everything you need for all-around hygiene. They have colognes, deodorizers, boxer briefs, t-shirts. They've sent us everything that they sell, and it's all top-notch products. I will never use other buzzers for the rest of my life. So, fellas, you got to get on Manscaped. Get their products. They are phenomenal. Everyone listening, these products are fantastic gifts for the men in your life. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from manscaped.com. And the biggest thing that Nolan addresses is that a world like this, it's lost hope. And it's just focused on trying to trying to deal with, at, deal with the problems at hand where uh, throughout the advancement of human history we have gained technology and advanced ourselves through you know uh, experimentation exploration adventure uh, invention um, dreaming and he addresses that i mean it's possible that a world like this can exist where we're encouraged not to try and dream and not to try and explore and not to try and advance technology but instead to just um, focus on the past and what we have and like, for example, the schools are teaching kids that we didn't actually land on the moon anymore because they don't want to inspire hope uh, of dreams of of leaving the planet because they deem that to be a waste of time. Where uh, if you look at history, uh, every major technological advancement or discovery or whether it be medical technology, uh, whatever it is, engineering, science, like it's all it, all, it was all created through uh, people dreaming big and exploring their ideas and trying to achieve something or accomplish something. And so that's something that Cooper has always wanted to do. He never had a chance to really explore and, and use his skills and use his talents to try and make uh, the world a better place. And so that's why 
when he's given the opportunity, he doesn't hesitate to, yeah. to leave. And I love how Donald, when they're sitting out on the porch having a beer, he's like, you were good at something and you never got to use it. You're either born 40 years too early or 40 years too late. He's kind of stuck. Like he should have been in the past in the golden age of, of aircrafts and, and engineering and, and space travel or 40 years later in, the, in this time when we're getting further back into space travel, which he wants to do. And, and in a way, you can look at Coop and, and think, here's this engineer, this pilot who's forced to be a farmer now out of necessity for the planet. He had to give up his dreams, and he has a family to look after, and he, he takes this almost suicide mission to go save the world, and he's doing it to save his daughter. But in a way, there's something about his his philosophy behind taking this mission that he doesn't think that it's a suicide mission at all. In a way, he thinks he believes in a way that he's coming back to Murph, he's coming back to his family, and it's something about that drives him even further. I think he believes that it's the only way they'll be able to, to save the Earth is tr by getting out there and exploring. You know what I mean? So that's, that's why I think he's so excited about it because he thinks that we're all wasting our time trying to grow as much corn as we can because that's not going to solve the problem because like Dr. Brandt tells him, eventually corn is going to die too. So they're going to run out of food and, and those who don't starve, they're going to die from lack of oxygen in the atmosphere. So there's no hope left on this planet. And so he's, he's finally like, okay, finally someone has given me the opportunity to really get out there and explore and try to find a way out of this, which is what I've always believed as the case for escaping this this doom that we've put upon ourselves. Yeah, because he thinks back to humanity and how we used to look up at the sky and, and wonder what our place was in the stars rather than worrying about our place here in the dirt for when we eventually die. And before we get a little further into the film, I want to explore another big idea about this movie or how someone explored big ideas for this movie, Hans Zimmer specifically. Oh, yeah. With one of the greatest film scores that's ever been made, I think, ever. Definitely this century. It's up there. It's my personal favorite score. And he's one of those people in film like Nolan who very very seldom actually gets awards or accolade, like the highest honors in, in terms of Oscars. And, he only has one. Yeah. So and they both only have one Oscar because Nolan even won. He only got his first. I mean, he didn't even win, right? He won for Memento, right? No, he got nominated. Oh, yeah. He never won an Oscar. Nolan's never even won an Oscar, which yeah. is crazy. But despite year after year, both these guys turn out some of the best projects and work in the industry. And I listen to these tracks all the time, and the amount of music, of, of amount of tracks in the score that gives me chills on a daily basis is insane. And the elements of the of the score are so diverse. Like the film, some tracks are inspiring. Some are hopeful. Some are epic. And then just like parts of the film, some are dark and even like horror esque. To, to find the main theme for this, Christopher Nolan wrote a little short story. Um, I, I believe it's it was so much... It was about... It was, I think, the simplest form of this story where a father abandons his daughter because it was necessary to do it. And so he wrote this little short story about that. It had nothing to do with sci-fi or anything. It was just like simple, personal, short story. Two lines of dialogue. That little drama. And he gave it to Hans Zimmer. He's like, give me music for this and see, read this and tell me, show me what you can come, come up with. And then Hans Zimmer read the story and he was inspired and he wrote um, what would eventually be the main theme of Interstellar on his on his keyboard. And he played it for Christopher Nolan at his studio. And then Nolan listened to that and he said, OK, now I have to make the movie. So now I know what to do when I've heard now that I've heard this theme. So it's an amazing score. And the obviously you could say the biggest difference between any other Hans Zimmer score is the heavy use of organs in this, which is something Nolan wanted because... Uh, I think 
space can can be seen can be seen as like almost a, a spiritual thing, not just cosmic, but a, a spiritual idea. And uh, you can look at it as as a, with a through a religious lens. And when you think of religion, you think of an organ in a church uh, if you're a Catholic. And and so he, they decided on an organ. And the organ they used for this film, um, it's one of the biggest organs in America. And it's it was so big that. They had to travel to the church where it was because there's no way to move it out of the church. And they um, hired the organ player, the local organ player for that church, the guy who's been playing that organ for decades. Um, they asked him to play the music because Hans Zimmer can play piano pretty well, but what he wrote in this, this score is extremely complex, like crazy notes. And it's just you need an expert level player to be able to to, to to play the music that he wrote and uh he doesn't even play the organ it's a it's a it's like a piano but like times three it's a, it's a complicated instrument and so he gave this pian this organist the the music and the guy just busted it out no problem and played the entire score and they recorded the audio inside that actual church so when you hear the organ in this movie they that was recorded inside of a church in like the midwest yeah well organs like that they're i'm, I'm assuming it's a massive one it's actually built into the church yeah and like the the tubes of the organ funnels if you want to call them are underneath the ground of the church too on the floor so it's like you literally you can't move it it's like a piano crossed with a wind instrument yeah the organ and yeah and built into the actual building itself and and what makes this score so moving is how personal it is just like the film because Again, he wrote the the theme, not knowing about science fiction in, in the elements of the film, not knowing about the space travel elements of the film, but just knowing about this personal story, this story about a father who has to leave a child for an important job. And the two lines in the short story were, I'll come back, and then the, the child says, when? That's the only two dialogue in the short story, and those are the that's one of the most important scenes of the film is where Coop is leaving Murph, and... She's asking when he's going to come back, and he has no idea when he's going to come back. He's trying to to cheer up and say, we might even be the same age when I come back. Who knows? And then she's like, you have no idea when you're coming back. So, And that's such an emotionally powerful scene. And I mean, I get goosebumps just thinking about it and talking about it. And I think that that's all infused in the score that Hans Zimmer came up with. And this might be the closest bond between filmmaker and composer in a movie I've ever seen. This episode is sponsored by MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. If you're a fan of movie posters or TV shows, there's no better way to express that love than with a movie poster. Put it in your room, put it all over your house, wherever. MoviePosters.com is the number one place to get your posters online today. If you're checking our set out, it's decked out with all these amazing posters. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, pretty much every movie imaginable. They've also teamed up with our podcast to sell our custom-made Raiders of the Lost podcast posters. We've done spoofs of the Shining and Lethal Weapon. We also have a, a custom Raiders poster as well, which MoviePosters.com is sending. Head on over to RaidersOfLostPodcast.com to check those out, along with the rest of our merch. Again, head over to MoviePosters.com for your poster needs and use our coupon code Raiders15. Again, Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. Yeah, I think that you can only compare them to Steven Spielberg and John Williams. But I just, I just mean just this movie alone. Yeah, this movie I think is, it's, I think it could be my favorite score as well. It's absolutely stunning, and the production of this film is just absolutely incredible. And it's hard to believe that he actually had less money than with The Dark Knight Rises. I think he only had, only had, had <laughs> 150 million for this one, 
And uh, he had he got a new cinematographer for this for, for this film. Like we've mentioned before, Wally Pfister went on and directed his own project, and now he does commercials and stuff. So he became a director. And even though he he's a brilliant cinematographer, he won the Oscar for Inception, and he shot all of Nolan's movies except for his first one. Um, they parted their ways, and Hoyt Van Hoytema was tapped to make this film. And Hoyt is a We've talked about him many times by now. Yes, he's he's, he's one of the best in the game. He's he's incredible, and the reason why he works so well with Nolan is because he's a lover of film as well. He's a lover of in camera practicality and as little CGI as possible. He's a he's a a fan of as much natural light as possible. So I think they have a lot of uh, similarities with how they approach filmmaking, and on top of that, he just has a, a natural eye for creating incredible beautiful imagery and for this film uh i believe up to this point in filmmaking it it, it uh involved the most imax footage ever shot in a, yeah. in a narrative feature film they only used one imax camera i think that's yeah. the only camera they used yeah and they actually it's the first film to ever shoot imax with handheld and so hoyt van hoyten he's a big guy and he actually retrofitted an imax camera which are notoriously heavy um, so no one's ever used them handheld because they're just so big. But Hoyt's a big guy, so he just literally was holding this with a shoulder rig on his shoulder, filming an IMAX for most of this movie, which is why it looks so stunning. Yeah, and they also were using prototype lenses that really they were just kind of making adjustments to on the fly because, again, they weren't really official lenses for IMAX. So, again, that's another reason why this looks so stunning. And going just one quick thing on Hans Zimmer again is – he uses this aspect of time passing in the music as well. So a lot of tracks and a lot of these high intense moments have a 60 BM, a 60 BPM, like on Miller's Planet, like on the No Time for Caution song, which is playing there during docking, the the coward song with with um Dr. Mann and Coop fighting on the on the frozen planet. And so if you actually watch and listen to it, it's a 60 BPM that you can literally just count in at the same time. And I think that that again shows this concept of time and how important it is to this film, because not only is it something that the characters really truly don't understand, it's something that we don't really understand at all either. We all know like what time is as a concept, but we don't really understand it because time, it happens all at once in the universe, but we can never perceive that because we're just three dimensional beings because, but in these bulk beings, they're five dimensional. So they experience it differently. Well, I get into the science aspect of it. We're, well, I mean, we might as well we just dab. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just brought it up. And obviously, if you, uh, we're going to spoil the movie from here on out. Uh, the whole opportunity given to the people in this film, given to humanity, is the wormhole, which NASA has sent probes into and also people into. And the wormhole, they know, was placed there by someone, which they don't, at the time, they don't know who put the wormhole there. But we learn by the end of the film that we put the wormhole there, as in humanity, the future of humanity. And we're talking humanity so far into the future that they've evolved through dimensions. They have, they've evolved onto a fifth dimensional plane where um, it's this great idea that like, whenever people talk about aliens or aliens coming to Earth, it, it could be future versions of ourselves. You know what I mean? Just thousands and thousands, even millennia. Uh, millions of years ahead of us at this point at this point in time yeah so who's they that's one of the main questions asked in the film and the wormhole near saturn it's a gravitational anomaly i mean not only is there that wormhole near saturn but there's also the gravitational anomalies on earth for example 
what caught it's what caused Coop to crash his his ship in that uh, dream that he has the flashback dream. Also, it's the gravitational anomalies are are the dust in the in in Murph's room, which shows the Morse code or the binary code. Also, the books falling off the shelf. Technically, that's a gravitational anomaly too, because that's also somebody interacting with gravity to, to go through time. It's not like these things are happening all over the world to other people. These uh, these things are happening specifically to Cooper and Murph because they have been tasked with saving the Earth, but they don't know it yet. That's why... It's that, not saving the Earth, it's saving humanity. Saving humanity, sorry. And so it's not like these anomalies are occurring all over the place. And obviously we know that the books are, are falling out of the shelf because that is Coop inside the Tesseract knocking the books over. Um, but because at that moment in the film, he's inside of a, a fifth dimension, which has been turned into a, a physical third dimension for him to interact with, fifth dimensional beings, time for them is not relative. It's just everywhere. It's everywhere. It's a circle. It's happening all at it's, once. So they can explore any moment in time just by walking through a doorway or something. Or like Dr. Brandt and Hathaway, it's a great metaphor where she says going into the past could be like walking down a canyon and then going into the future could be walking up a mountain. Yeah, but it's it's kind of like a rival, that concept of those alien beings, spoiler alert, they, spo <laughs> they experience time as a loop that they can access at all times. It's a little different. It's a similar concept here where time is happening all at once and these fifth dimensional beings are perceiving it all at once. But you can also imagine that they're experiencing time from beginning to end forever, the entirety of time. So how the hell do they pinpoint where to find this person or find the right spot in time in all this entirety of human of existence to find Murph at the right moments inside her bedroom? That's that's why Coop is tasked because obviously Murph has chosen to save humanity with the equation, but Coop is tasked with being put inside the three D construct in the fifth dimension, the Tesseract, to be able to use love to transcend time to to transcend time and dimensions to find Murph to send the quantum data at the end of the film. And if you think too hard about this, it could really hurt your head. I mean, we're talking headache. about grandfather the grand paradox. The grandfather paradox because how do because how, how did Cooper get tasked with this mission in the present if he didn't even accomplish it yet and save humanity yet? And, and so how like did the bulk being survived. Yeah. How do they survive and how do they send this message of the binary code on their floor if it didn't even happen yet? And so it's it's the the grandfather paradox is a very confusing anomaly that's been used in movies like The Terminator, where if like for example, if like I'm born if my grandfather is born and has a son, and then that I'm that that person has a, has a son, I'm the son of the father. And then if I travel back in time and kill my grandfather, then I could never have been born and I could never have traveled back in time. Or killed my grandfather. Or killed my grandfather. So none of it could have been possible, but yet it is inevitable. And so it's a very confusing concept, but the the trick is to just not think too hard about it and just kind of accept it. Because um, otherwise, the Terminator doesn't work, but it's a movie, so just let it play out. And it's fun to think about and fun to watch. So you got to approach it with this kind of air of just accepting it. Yeah. But aside from things like that, this film is actually pretty spot on with the science. And Kip Thorne, who's a theoretical physicist, he helped develop the story and the script. And the film and concepts themselves are based on actual science in terms of the wormholes, black holes, 
um, how gravity affects times because early in pre-production, Dr. Kip Thorne, he laid down two guidelines for Chris Nolan to follow for him to consult on the film. And that would be nothing would violate established physical laws and that all the wild speculations that like a director would come up with just for a cool scene or concept in a film that wouldn't happen and that it would be based on science. And he even had a two week discussion of talking Chris Nolan out of having people traveling at the speed of light or faster than the speed of light. That's impossible. According to Kip Thorne, the, the largest degree of a creative license that Chris Nolan took in this film is the ice clouds on Dr. Man's planet. Um, those structures probably wouldn't be possible to be formed based on the material strength that the ice, it wouldn't be able to support itself floating. Yeah, because it's gas. Yeah, so, so it wouldn't be able to solidify like that. And in terms of the black hole and wormhole, Kip Thorne, he actually collaborated with the visual effects supervisor in the team in their team at Double Negative to, he basically gave them tons of pages of deep source theoretical equations to this team, and they created new CGI software programs based on those based on those equations to create accurate computer simulations of these phenomena. And, and the cool thing about it is, no one had never seen a black hole before. And until you really you saw this movie and you saw the great, beautiful image of the black hole. But that was actually confirmed a few years later when it was NASA with the telescope got the first actual images of a black hole. And it looked just like the black hole interstellar. Yeah, it was it was dead on accurate. It's it's amazing. In Kip Thorne, he's not just like any old uh, physicist. physicist. Like he this guy was a, a good friend of Stephen Hawking, you know, like the same caliber of intellect. You know what I mean? So this is a very intelligent guy. And. The equations in Dr. Brand's office were actually written by Kip Thorne. They are real equations uh, on of mathematics on gravity and black holes. So that's all real. The reason why it works is because it adheres so much to reality and, and the rules of the universe and the rules of that we know on Earth. And Christopher Nolan, everyone knows, is a very practical filmmaker. And the practical effects on this film are, are second to none. I mean, he built everything he could. The only CGI there is is like the real the space travel and the wormhole and the, the star and the like wave that giant wave. But otherwise, it's the, shot real locations. Yeah, all the ships were real miniatures. Like every single ship, um, uh, all locations. Like even on the water planet, when the ship lands on the water, like they actually built a real replica ship and literally took a crane and just splashed it into the water. So Christopher Nolan is. His practicality in filmmaking has always been one of his strengths. And even um, the Tesseract at the end of the film, that's a real set they really built. Like, you would think that's all CGI, but... They did incorporate CGI yeah, so, on top of it. Yeah, so they built, I think, four stories worth of that set with different rooms, with different uh, Murph rooms. And the, the actress Mackenzie Foy would actually walk into these different rooms for all the shots. And then uh, Matthew McConaughey was actually hanging on wires, moving throughout this entire space. And then... Uh, they extended it with CGI, yes, but what he's interacting with physically, that's all that was all built on set. Like that's not CGI. And that's why it looks so good. And my favorite probably my favorite um, practical effect is the cornfield um in on their farm, the Cooper farm, in which they have acres and acres of corn, which Christopher Nolan and the crew actually grew before beforehand before filming, because that that what's really cool about the location of the farmhouse is if you look on the shots, there's there are small mountains behind it, and it's actually nearly impossible to grow any kind of crops on land that is that close to mountains in that area because the soil is so dry um, and high in salt 
And so no one thought they would be able to grow any crops because no one does there. Um, that's why you'll never see farmland like with mountains, really. You know what I mean? But they actually tried it out and they planted like millions of seeds and they grew this gigantic cornfield, really filmed inside of it, drove those trucks and cars through the cornfield. And then uh, when they were done filming the movie, Christopher Nolan and the crew uh, sold all of the corn and made a profit on it. Yeah, just put some of that Chris Nolan super juice inside of there. Who knows what? <laughs> in the real locations, he, he shot, yeah, obviously we're in different planets, different galaxies, but he did it practically. He went to locations like Alberta, Canada, and he used Iceland's, I'm going to mispronounce the hell out of this, Svenosvegjokul Glacier, which, Sounded perfect. which is the same glacier that he used when he filmed The Batman Begins, where Ra's al Ghul and Bruce Wayne are, are sword fighting in, in those opening shots and everything. One of my favorite scenes. On the ice. And so that's the same glacier as Batman Begins that is the ice planet. But there was recently before filming a, a volcanic eruption and it spread gray ash all over the glacier. So it actually made it this dark gray effect and it makes it look like a different planet. Yeah, it looks like it's an unnatural part of the environment that could not exist on Earth, but it does and it's it's amazing. Miller's planet is awesome too. That water planet. I just love that scene when you they land and you see the background and it looks like there's just like a, a mountain range in the in the distance. And then when they realize that it's actually this like 200 foot wave that's just approaching them unrelentingly, it's it's an unbelievable scene. It's so dramatic and uh, Hans Zimmer's score for that is just heart pounding. I, I love that scene. Let's talk about time because it's something that Nolan is clearly obsessed with because he has it in so many aspects of his film in terms of a theme or a motif, but also he plays with it so much in all of his stories. And again, we don't really understand time and time and space are connected and time exists all at once. But again, we experience it as past, present or future because we're linear beings, but these fifth dimensional beings experience it all times at once. So humans can only experience the now, and they're, we're moving forward. But in the film, and according to science, this is scientifically proven, time is changed depending on gravity. So it moves slower for those and strong gravitational force. And it was confirmed using clocks, where there was a clock on Earth, and then they sent a clock above Earth's gravity. And the one that's away from the gravity moves slightly faster. So now picture that. With a black hole, the gravitational pull of a black hole, like as strong as a force that's on Miller's planet, which is the waves are caused from the gravitational pull of the black hole that it orbits. So the the stronger the gravitational force, the slower time passes by in comparison with ours, and that's why about an hour on Miller's planet equates to what is it seven years seven on years. Earth, which is an unbelievable plot point and a, an intense moment of conflict. And I think it's Nolan's best. Um, theorized plot device on time in his entire filmography. I think it's absolutely genius because the stakes couldn't be higher. I mean, every second literally counts while they're on Miller's planet. And it's a vital part of the scene. It, it ends in failure. And it's a, it's a turning point for the film because uh, you want this team to succeed, but you clearly see that they, they Miller in uh, Cooper even says like, they're not prepared for this. They, they, they might've had theories and they might've gotten the mathematics right, but um, it's one thing to write about it on a piece of paper and put the, the equation in a computer, but it's another thing to actually experience it. Yeah, Miller's Planet, it's literally a movie within itself. It's like a movie in a movie, like a dream within a dream. <laughs> and 
before they go down there, they're talking about how plan A doesn't work if people on Earth are all dead. So that's why they have to think of time as a resource while they're down in Miller's planet because time's relative. It can stretch and squeeze, but it can't travel backwards, which is what Cooper's trying to fix once they're down there and they come back and they lose Doyle and they lose 23 years of Earth time. And it's a really powerful scene because... Not only does it present a massive problem and consequence to these characters that up until this point were like, oh, they're in space. Oh, they're going to go save the world. It's going to be great. But we actually have this intense scene. It shows that, like you said, they're underprepared in a way. They don't really know what they're dealing with, no matter how much they think they understand space. And those the sheer size of those waves, they got to be like 300 feet tall. That's just a wake-up call that they have no idea what the hell they're in for. They're in a different galaxy. They're in different planets. And... Cooper's trying to think of ways when her, when him and Brand are stuck on the ship waiting for the engines to to drain. He's like, maybe the bulk beings can help us get that time back. Maybe if we reach them, they can help us out. And Brand's trying to explain to him that we're linear beings. Those are five dimensional beings, like you like you said earlier. To them, going into the past is like a, a canyon they can climb into, or a future is a mountain that they climb up, and they just they just can't get that time back. You can only stretch or squeeze time. It's that, and it's that human humans can't. Yeah. Go can't like reverse time unless it's tenant. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's saying in general you can't yeah. reverse time. It's not the bulk beans can't reverse yeah, time. Yeah, there's yeah. there's no, there, all there is no reversing time. There's yeah. just traveling uh, for a fifth dimensional being just moving into a different area of time. And then one of the most heartbreaking scenes of the film comes right after Miller's planet when they get back up to the endurance. And first we see Romley, who's played by David Gayassi, and he he's a great performance in this scene in particular. He's exceptional because how do you picture somebody who's been alone for 23 years, even though he's taken some long sleeps? He's been alone on a ship for 23 years. I don't know how this guy lasted this long. I would have been like, lights out, bro. I'm where are the I'm pills. Good. I'm good. Like, I'm, there's got to be something on here that I can, can end this with. But um, even after that, then they have the scene where Cooper is watching the years of messages from his family back on Earth. And we watch Tom in his life and we watch how his first son died, Jesse, and then we watch he has a new son named Coop. And it's it's a really emotional scene because Nolan just keeps the camera really just on Coop the whole time, and he's watching these videos of a future that he could have had that are now memories that he never experienced. And the audience never experienced that either. We didn't experience growing up with these people or, or their storylines. And so it's it's so dramatic because... It shows you how you should really cherish those moments you have with your family, with your children in your past so that you can actually have those memories for the future. And it also shows the real cost of the mistake on Miller's planet because, I mean, it's it's one thing to say, oh, we lost 23 years, but Nolan wisely shows that with the footage of his family where it was three hours for, for Coop between leave Miller's planet and then coming to the seat in front of the TV screen and his his children became adults and uh, McConaughey knocks the scene out of the park it's unbelievable acting he he breaks my heart every time and and it's it's an incredibly powerful scene but also it's uh, it's such an original scene because you've never seen a scene like it before no I, no scene had ever done that before what have like what what other movie has a parent watching the footage of his children that he he missed growing up it's, it's such a, a, a great, great concept. Yeah, and a lot of people, I, I don't think they understand how 23 years passed while they're on Miller's planet, even though it seems like 
they were just down there for a few minutes. But you, you got to understand when you're watching a movie, you can't always just look at it in terms of time versus time of you watching it. Oh, like, like real time. Like real time. And you yeah. got to understand that we don't see the entire journey of them inside the gravitational pull and atmosphere of Miller's planet. We don't see them trying to find the beacon. We don't see them the full landing sequence. We don't see them fully walking and... They just, I think that TARS they, says that the waves come every 45 minutes and they actually experience two waves. So you got to take with a grain of salt that you can't have a three and a half hour movie scene. Nolan's trying to speed <laughs> that them, up. Of him and them two sitting in a spaceship. Yeah, so you, you got to take with a grain of salt. Movies are edited. They're cut up unless there's a very specific sequence where a director is trying to tell you that this is only going to happen in 10 minutes, minutes, which doesn't happen very often. But it's not relative to the time you're watching it. And it's the thing where Nolan gives you the information you need, but you just, you just have to really pay attention because, like you just said, TARS says that a wave comes every 45 minutes. So at least 45 minutes has, has passed since that first wave. So we know they've been there for a while, even though it was like a one minute of screen time in the movie. So technically, if you're counting the two waves that come, yeah. that's over. It's an hour and a half pretty much. Yeah. And so don't think it's like reading a book you know when you're reading a book you're not counting like it's only been one minute and harry potter's still in his room like, <laughs> <laughs> don't think of when you're watching a movie just because you're watching it it's relative to, to, to your time like time's relative yeah. so isn't watching a movie yeah exactly and then another major element and theme in this movie that i think is really subtle but i think is one of the main inspirations for the film is is the theme of dust and dust is prevalent throughout the entire film, whether it be the dust storms, like the dust, the hearkening back to the dust bowls of the, of the 1950s. And those are real interviews, by yeah, the way. That was real. Yeah. Documentary footage um, from a real documentary about the dust bowl in the 50s. And, and you know, the dust is a part of life and it's, it's destroying crops and it's also filling up the atmosphere. And dust was used to translate the binary code. Gotcha. Um, and then... But why why dust? Why is it why is it dust used in this movie so much? And I would guess that it's because uh, of the really amazing fact that uh, we all come from stardust. You know what I mean? He, everything on Earth came from what was once the dust of a star. And also, you could say that it signifies death because we all eventually become dust. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So it's the dying planet, the dying human species, are becoming dust. And also. Human species is, a, is another point where there's two ways of thinking about the the crisis on Earth. And this comes into play with Dr. Brandt, Michael Caine's character, whereas people like Cooper and his daughter, Brandt, and they look at humanity and even Murph when she becomes an adult as a people and a people that um, can be saved. Whereas Dr. Brand, Michael Caine, he's looking at humanity as a species. And by objectifying the humanity in that way, by making it less of a personal uh, relationship between the idea of, a spe of, a, of humanity and just turning into it's just a species, I think that's what allows him to make the decision to put the astronauts on this mission which he knows is not going to work out for plan A, but will have to implement plan B of starting a new colony of humans on another planet because he he's looking at the species, the, the future of the species, not the people on the planet. And so I think those are the two contradicting 
uh, viewpoints on the crisis in the film that um, eventually clash when it comes when they learn the real truth of Dr. Brand's intentions, where they want to save the people on Earth, whereas he wants to save the species. And there's two very different ways of going about those. Yeah, and I think they make it seem like Dr. Brand wants to make it seem like both options are possible, and we're going to go with Plan A, which is saving Earth and solving the gravity theorem, and and leaving Earth which with as many people as they can so that they don't, they don't have to use Plan B, which is abandoning all the people on Earth, using a population bomb on a planet that they find that is habitable with the 5,000 fertilized eggs and starting brand new to keep the species alive. And Dr. Brand obviously lies throughout this film, and he justifies it where he says that no one would work hard or, or work as hard as they did to save humanity if they knew that humanity was doomed so that he, he keeps up this lie, keeps up this facade so that people are motivated to save the human species, to work hard, to get people into space, going through that wormhole. The Lazarus missions where they sent people into the, the wormhole 10 years ago to, to explore those 12 potentially, 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 sorry, habitable planets and Lazarus um, as Cooper says, or, or Dr. Mann says, had to come back from the dead, but Cooper says that he had to die first. So it's kind of a very symbolic message of the planet's dying, human beings are dying, and they're going to come back from the dead. But Cooper says, but they had to die first, so we can't kill the species and then come back to life. We have to save it. And Brand, like we, like we talked about, Cooper believes in hope. Brand understands the power of hope, which is why he's been lying to everyone about the mission. Because he knew immediate, he knew very early on that he would never be able to finish the the gravity equation. He knew it would it would be impossible for him to do that, and they would never find a way off this planet. And so he instilled hope into the minds of those. It's very much like Bane in the prison in the pit, where he puts Bruce at the bottom of the pit with the opening up top, so that he can just look at the hope that it it it, sh it brings them just the sight of escape, even though they can't escape. You don't fear death. Your punishment must be more severe. And there's also another uh, sinister character who knew of this uh, fake mission as well, and that's uh, Dr. Mann, played by Matt Damon, um, who is a great character. And we've, we've, we've spoken about this before, how uh, Matt Damon was left out of the marketing of the film. He wasn't in any trailers, not in any posters. His name didn't show up on any bit of marketing. So uh, nobody knew he was in this movie until you're watching the film an hour and a half into it, they open up the sleep chamber and Matt Damon stands, sits up out of that. And you're just like, I screamed. It was like, that's Matt Damon. What? I almost stood up in the movie theater. Matt Damon's in this movie. It's great. It was a great reveal. It was so shocking. And um, it really was a, a, a turn the tables on the film because now we have a real antagonist on the crew. Yeah. Because up until this point, Time has really just been the antagonist or the villain of the film, and now we actually have one in representation in physical form. And this happens right before, I mean, right after they get back from Miller's planet and they have to decide either to choose Edmund's planet or Man's planet because both are sending a positive signal. Man's planet is saying it's all good. Come down and, and come check it out, and we can hang out and have s'mores by campfire. <laughs> And then uh, Edmund's planet is actually relaying better information. It's saying that it's organics and they have all there's positive resources down there too. But then there's I believe there's a difference where Edmund's is not radioing information. He's just radioing he, that he landed. Yeah, and so they don't know. Like we'll find out at the end of the film that he actually died, um, but they don't know that yet. So 
Cooper smartly understands like that's a possibility where it it could be a, a, a false radio just like Miller's planet. Yeah, and Cooper's trying to make his decision on which planet to choose because they only have enough fuel to go to one planet and then make it back to Earth. Or they'd have to either just abandon Earth and then they could go to both planets. They don't have enough fuel for, for both options. So they have to either pick one planet and go home. And so they choose... Uh, man's planet because Coop had intuitively figured out um, that Dr. Brand, I mean, that Brand is in love with Edmonds and Brand starts talking about love and how it's, it's something observable. It's powerful. It has to have meaning. It has to mean something. Maybe love is something we don't understand. Maybe it's an artifact of another dimension we can't yet perceive love is the only thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends time dimensions of time and space i mean we love people desperately who aren't even alive anymore so how how is that possible if it's not an important aspect of the universe and coop's trying to be objective and say that she's her decision is biased because she wants to see edmonds again she wants to see wolf again but she's on to something here with this concept of love that Cooper just doesn't understand yet. And I think this is where a lot of people who don't like the movie, they find their biggest problem with the this concept of love transcending time and space. And I think it's a really a really neat concept, and I think it's, uh, it's true in a lot of ways. And, I mean, if you've ever experienced love or loss, you understand how powerful of a feeling it is. And maybe, you, it's, not even, maybe it's even more than just a feeling, you know what I mean? And it's hard to, to put into words because it has it can have such a, a powerful effect on us in our lives. And so I think Nolan had a I think is is really talking about something really really incredible in this moment in this scene. And I really love it actually. Yeah, and maybe maybe humans are just afraid to love, and that's why they're so cynical about it and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I love how after the scene, Doctor Man tells them that. After they come back, they're going to have to decide between the fate of the human race or his children, and, and uh, she hopes he'll be as objective then about the situation. Ooh, burn. But then let's get back to Dr. Man's planet where he comes up, and there's something off about man. He, he His body language is a little weird, and he's telling you everything you, you think you want to hear, but you look around this planet, and it's like, where could there possibly be resources? All I see is frozen tundra, and, all I, and they're talking about pneumonia in the air. And, and so how— how does this work and the the days are 67 hours long and the nights are 68 hours long and they're Ouch. incredibly cold and fr and freezing and it's just a frozen planet and we eventually learn that these are all complete lies he and he actually is, he knew about dr brand's lie that plan a was a facade and before dr man's gonna do that little mission with coop Brand gets the message back that from Murph that her father's died, and Murph obviously is upset, and that's when this movie gets kind of dark, and she has that confession online on the video feed, and Doctor Man blatantly confesses that there was no need to come back. Plan A was a facade. Um, Doctor Man's planet—they don't know it yet. It's a complete lie that it's habitable, and he explains that. Dr. Brand, he couldn't reconcile relativity with quantum mechanics because you need to see inside of a black hole and you can't see the singularity. And without that information and data, you can't solve the the equation or the, the theorem of gravity. I think that Dr. Mann is called Mann for a reason. 
I believe it implies the the flaw of humanity of humanity and the flaw that a person has and we're not perfect beings and um we make mistakes and as amazing and remarkable as the cast keeps saying that Dr. Man is the best of all of the us. The best of all of us is he's still just a flawed individual and he we learned that his biggest flaw was his arrogance because he he tells Coop before he attacks him that he never imagined that the planet he landed on wouldn't be the one. So he was so stubborn and arrogant that he believed that he was the one out of the 12 astronauts that was going to the habitable planet. And then when he landed on this ice planet, um, he was shocked and surprised by the outcome of landing on a dead planet. And that arrogance led to fear and uh, especially the fear of death because he it seemed as though he didn't fear death by being the person who led the mission and encouraged the others to join the mission. But clearly when he realized that he was going to die... Which was as soon as he landed. Yeah, as soon as he landed, he realized... When he realized, oh, I, I am going to die, which he never even considered, then he panicked and came up with a scheme to uh, radio out that he found uh, life in order to be saved. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the dialogue that he says while him and Cooper are traveling, it's a lot about survival and life. And he's talking about how that yearning to be with other people is so powerful. And he's just saying things that you can only imagine that someone that's been alone for a decade would be thinking about every day of their life. And he's talking about how machines don't improvise well because they can't compute the fear of death and human beings have survival instincts and the last thing you see before your death is your children and like you say he never considered the possibility that his planet wasn't the one and even when he's attacking coop and he's smashing his helmet against coops 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 just trying to calm down he's like dr man you have a 50 50 shot of killing yourself and he's like that's the best odds i've had in years and even he observes coop while coop is suffocating and dying and he's talking him through his death because he doesn't think that he's a bad person or a villain, but his survival instincts are kicking in so powerfully that he's willing to sacrifice people and kill people in order to survive himself. But then the arrogance, believing that he's the one who has to carry out the mission, which is why he's going to sabotage their mission, because he wants to be the one that leads humanity into its next, uh, um, into its next civilization and the next stage of its survival, because he wants the glory more than anything, I think, as well. Yeah, and not only does he try to kill Kurt, Coop, but he, he uh, plants the bomb inside his TARS robot, which Romley, unfortunately, blows up in that explosion. Then he steals the, the, sh the ship that they came to the planet with, and then his plan is to dock the Endurance and take over the mission, like you said. And that docking sequence, man... That's my favorite scene in film ever. It's so good. Because it's, this it's is... great. Like you said, the arrogance and hubris of Dr. Man, he thinks that he can come onto the ship, dock it despite not having the skills to manually dock it according to the procedures of the Endurance. Well, it's not the skills, it's that they turned off the lock, the auto-lock ability. So yeah, they turned off the auto-docking sequence, but also he doesn't know the manual commands to dock to the Endurance ship with the ship. So he, he he's going to dock even though... Even though the computer is screaming error, and even though it's breached, it's yeah. And even though he knows it's not locked on, and and Brand's telling him not to open the airlock, his arrogance and also his survival instinct is saying no matter what, 
this is going to work and I don't want to die. Yeah, the hubris of man, I think, is the, the, the essence of his character. And the docking sequence is great because you think that, oh, the world's over. Like, humanity's never going to survive. And it's an amazing sequence where Coop takes his ship. And obviously, we know that the station is rotating very quickly. What makes the scene so great, which we mentioned earlier, is that it's all practical. Like, this is all... Uh, they really had a ship yeah. and they really docked it in space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they really built these miniatures and really the light. I mean, you could just tell with the light pouring onto these spaceships, like, oh, that's real. And it, it feels tangible and it feels like it's really there in front of you. And that's why it's so powerful. Yeah, because the fate of humanity rests on the shoulders of Coop and Tars to be able to dock to the spinning ship at an incredible rate of speed. Something improbable. Once he does dock, we get the amazing encounter with the black hole. And gargantuan. Gargantuan. And the black hole itself, I think, is probably the, the the apex of this movie. Because like we've said, no one had ever seen one. We don't know what they look like, let alone up close and in person. And when that ship teeters along the, the, the light rays of this black hole and then enters it, it's like uh, is the most exciting science fiction sequence since Kubrick's 2001: A Space Odyssey. It, it, it there's not nothing else compares to those two. Yeah, because once they come up from man's planet and they've docked the insurance, they've docked to the endurance, and Cooper is able to thrust it out of the gravitational pull of the planet, they get stuck in the gar in the gravitational pull of Gargantuan, and they don't have enough so support to make it to Earth. They may be able to have enough to make it to Edmund. So Coop decides to use the gravity of Gargantuan to slingshot to Edmund's planet. But again, like he like we talked, he mentions a few times in the film, Newton's third law leaves something behind. And this is where he sacrifices himself and Tara sacrifices himself too to drop from the ship in order to give it enough lightness and weight to make it to Edmund's planet and escape the gravitational pull. The sequence inside of the black hole, it's really amazing. At first, it begins with, it looks like sand pouring on. Pretty soon, it, he's just overtaken by black emptiness. Rocks start hitting the ship, and he has to bail out. So he, then he's flying through this emptiness. And could be my favorite shot in the movie where he, like, straps the camera to Cooper looking down at his feet like a POV. And you see something in the distance, and he gets closer and closer to it. And we see that it's the Tesseract, and he follow he falls into one of these like alleys within the the tesseract and it's an amazing effect and I, when i saw this in theaters for the first time i was like what is happening terrified it's again there, there are some real horror elements to this film and some very terrifying scenes yeah like, this scene with the score that zimmer provided like this thrashing noise it's terrifying yeah very scary and but just like coop i was filled with dread because coop is filled with fear and dread because no one's ever been this far in the history of humanity maybe in the history of the galaxy or universe. And the cool thing about it is I think Coop, the character he is, the explorer he is, he didn't hesitate to sacrifice himself and fall into this black hole because he's still trying to save the planet. He's still trying to gather information as he's even, he's even collecting information for whatever's recording his ship. He's saying, oh, I see blackness. I see shocks, lights, this and that. So he's trying to observe and report information. And, Cooper's in this Tesseract, and it's a structure that you could probably never imagine if you're a person until you see this movie, and 
he's trying to work out where he is and he sees all these images of his daughter's bedroom and Murph's here and Murph's a different age over here in the scenes that he sees himself and he's he's starting to work out that he was the ghost all along in Murph's bedroom and the ghost that didn't haunt her but was trying to communicate with her and try to communicate with himself while he's in that room. And what's really powerful is that when he sees his daughter as a young girl again, he's filled with intense regret. And that's why he's slamming on the bookshelf and creating Morse code signals, Morse code signals, trying to tell himself to stay and not to leave because he feels remorse for abandoning his, abandoning his daughter. And um, even though there, the chance of saving humanity lays at his feet, all he wants is to see his little girl again. Yeah, because leaving Murph and leaving the planet filled Murph with nothing but animosity towards her father. She never would send him video messages. She only sent one on the birthday that she turned the same age as Coop when he left Earth. That's the only time she ever sent a video message. So she's been filled with anger towards her father for decades, for 23 years. She's been filled with anger and which you can you can imagine is is definitely plausible, and especially the fact that she can't even spend too much time in her the house that she grew up in because uh, I think she ha is dealing with so much traumatic um, pain from the abandon abandonment of her father that she can't even deal with being inside the house for more than probably an hour or so. Yeah, and she thinks that Coop abandoned her, especially when Doctor Brand is on his deathbed, and the last thing he says to her, she thinks that it means that. Coop knew the whole time and she thought she thought that Coop left because he wanted to save himself and that's why he's asking Bran when she sends the video message did you know did you know that this is all a joke this is all a sham and because Coop, Murph has so much love for her father that's why she's feeling so emotional and that's what's really allows Coop to figure out what's happening inside this tesseract why he's there who these bulk beings are and how he can use love and how he's able to use Murph's love for him to pinpoint the location of her in the watch. And this is where love comes in because, yes, he uses gravity to communicate through time. But that gravity, you, you can say, is motivated by love. So it wouldn't have happened without love. Yeah, he wouldn't be able to find Murph. They both love each other very much. But I think it's really, despite Murph hating her father she also loves him intensely yeah i mean if you look at chastain's clothing in this she dresses just like cooper does mm -hmm. um and he gave her he uses the watch because she knew she he knew she'd come back for it because he gave it to her yeah and it's like doesn't matter what time she comes back for it it's just as long as she comes back for it eventually <laughs> <laughs> so he uses love to find the right moment to send the quantum data that tars relays to him which who knows how long that would have taken to do in morse code my I god she's and Imagine messing one up. Yeah. <laughs> and this is Coop understanding that they didn't bring us here to change the past. We brought ourselves and Murph was chosen. He's realizing that he brought himself here with those coordinates that he asked TARS to relay to him. So he brought himself to the Tesseract and on this mission with those coordinates. And he says that we're the bridge. Humans are the bridge between the fifth dimensional beings because we are the fifth dimensional beings. That's the biggest grandfather paradox, the dust. Because, like, how could he leave the binary code if he didn't know what it was? He only knew what it was because of 
be seeing the code in the past. And well, he only knows what it is because Tars relays him. So yeah, and he won't it's even be crazy. There. Another grandfather part paradox. It's, it's crazy. And then, and then when his his, his mission is done. And the, the future beings are like, nice job. <laughs> they send him back outside of Saturn, and he's picked up, and he's brought to Elon Musk's space station. <laughs> Cooper Station. But really, love is the key, and that was the connection, because their connection of love is quantifiable. Yeah. And it's, again, like you talked about how no one ever seen a scene in a film where a man... Or a father or a parent is watching videos of decades lost of time of their children that he just lost. The, he just was in the same time area with them three hours before. No one ever seen anything like that before watching that information and dealing with the aging of their children. Then we have a father who's at his daughter's deathbed who's elderly compared to him. So Murph is considered the the savior of humanity, although she tries to tell she had she had tried to tell everyone over the decades that Cooper was the one who re relayed the the information, um, but no one believed her that he survived and was able to send information through dimension or or time and space and and so she she is considered uh, the savior of humanity, hence the name of the space station being named after her. There's that cute scene where it's called Murph Station and Coop Station. I mean, called Coop Station. And uh, he's like, oh, that's nice that you named it after me. And the doctor's like, oh, it's named after your daughter. <laughs> it's Murphy Cooper we're talking about here. <laughs> but uh, again, we get that theme of living in the past again in the space station where Cooper doesn't really like the idea of the space station replicating the old world pretending like uh, pretend, we're living yeah. where we used to be because i think that he's he we could probably fall into the same scheme the same kind of problems so he doesn't like that about this world which is why murph basically just gives him permission to leave and um he finally at the end of this film uh has the ability to go out and set off into the unknown again and and explore again because I think that someone like him as an explorer, as an adventurer, he can't just sit down and and live life on, on the ground, on the earth. He needs to, he needs to be out there discovering. And I think that's what drives him that hope of discovery and the, the anticipation of, of exploration. Yeah. Even though he was in a fifth dimension using a third dimensional structure in a black hole, he comes back, and the next day he's like, all right, where are we going next, guys? It wasn't good enough. It's amazing. <laughs> this guy's life. He's, it's like speed. Like you, you, you need more and more and more. <laughs> he can never be satisfied, bro. In the ending of this movie, I think that he's definitely going to find Dr. Brandt on Edmund's planet. Yeah. And, and they're going to like colonize the Earth, the new Earth. Yeah, they're, they'll definitely colonize. Well, the planet's probably going to be called Brand. Oh, yeah. I love the ending of this film, and I know a lot of people want a sequel to this movie and they're like oh he perfectly set it up for a sequel where where cooper finds dr brand and the planet brand and they they colonize the earth and maybe they fight aliens and whatnot or who knows and maybe there's like space tigers on that planet that <laughs> i don't know but um movies don't need sequels especially masterpieces especially phenomenal movies like this chris nolan does not make sequels outside of the batman franchise that's different that's comic books that's superhero it's a franchise He's never made a sequel to any of his original films, ever. So 
He's never going to make a sequel to Interstellar, I don't think. I'd be shocked. I think if the next time he makes a movie that requires a sequel, it'd be like a Bond movie if he ever did that. But I don't ever see a sequel make be made of this. I don't see a sequel being made of Tenet or nothing. It the, doesn't need it. The thing is, with every Nolan movie, it ends with possibility. And so all of his movies, they end, but the stories aren't concluded fully. Every single one of his movies, except for Insomnia, which he didn't write. Yeah, so, even Inception is yeah. not really over. So, is, is he, so, a dream? Is yeah. he sleeping so, or not? So Memento, uh, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, Inception, uh, this movie, Tenet. I mean, The Prestige. So all the movies, they, they end, but the stories aren't over yet. And he, I think that's one of the strengths to his storytelling and his writing because when a Nolan movie's over, all you can think about is like, oh, what happens after this? You know what I mean? So it's not like an, another normal movie where, oh, the movie ended, the story's over. What a great ending. It's like, I am so curious, like, what happens to the character after this point in time? And um, so I think that's what he always does. And that's why people want sequels oftentimes with his movies. Um, and But I think that it's best if we just imagine it for ourselves. So, want to go back and just talk a little bit. I have some more stuff to talk about about the movie. Sure, I mean, I'm good, but if you want. And there's some other great aspects of this film that I, I love to think about, especially the, the relationship between Murph and Cooper, where these two characters, father and daughter, they're so similar. They're both very intelligent, motivated. They're both stubborn as hell. They prefer figuring things out for themselves. Murph is just as much an explorer as Coop is in a way. You know, she sneaks into his truck when he's going to explore those coordinates. Um, and Coop, he doesn't want to be stuck on Earth. And Murph is focused on exploring, saving humanity. So I think there's so many similarities between these two characters. And I think Chris Nolan shows that not just in their personalities, but also in their wardrobe where she's still wearing the jacket that he wore. Well, it's not the same jacket. But it's very similar. It's very similar. It's very similar. Yeah. Twenty-three years later, even though she she basically hates her father, as much animosity as she has for him, she's committed her life to being a part of the same mission as him. Yeah, you know what I mean. I also want to give a shout out to Tars, who's Tars this, is a star, who's this great robot. It's a a former Marine robot in a. This is this giant sarcastic robot half the time, and it's it's one of my favorite characters, and it's actually. Obviously, some of the shots of Tars are CGI, but a lot of his actual real practical effects with the puppeteer behind Tars the robot itself just wearing a gray leotard. And and the actor, Bill Irwin, who's in a lot of Kirby Enthusiasm, he plays one of his friends. He's the performer. And Tars is kind of like Coop's best friend in this movie, and he's with him throughout all the missions. He's with him later in the end, and Coop uses Tars as sort of a connection in a way to leaving the past behind because Tars follows him bravely in every avenue that he follows and he helps him steal the jet at the end of the mission at the end of the film and takes off with Tars and Tars he, he fixes Tars up and fixes his humor setting and brings it down to 65 but I just love the relationship between Tars and Cooper and Tars is one of my favorite characters for sure. Why are you whispering? They can't hear us. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at uh, behind the scenes footage of the movie uh, not footage, but they only have it in photos. You can see the actor. He literally, so the, he was standing on, like, they might have, they put, like, some kind of, like, little platforms on the bottom of Tars, and he just stood on those, and so he was able to puppeteer and walk with it. And But he's always wearing just, like, it wasn't like he's wearing, like, a mocap suit. He's just wearing, like, black Under Armour pants and a shirt. <laughs> but it's a really great effect. And uh, he, Christopher Nolan, came up with the idea of the the shape of the robot, 
because he wanted it to be different and he wanted it to be unexpected. But also it had to be practical and be able to, you know, move in these scenes and do things. And so um, the first people he tested the idea out on were his children. And so he had his production designer made a small version of TARS, like a model. And he showed it to his kids and Nolan's kids were like, oh, it looks kind of dumb. It's just like what this rectangle block. But then they saw the different appendages of TARS and how it can move and interact with the environment. And then they were like, okay, this, this is actually pretty cool. So once once he saw that his, his kids accepted it and liked the idea of this type of a robot, then he that gave him the, the green light pretty much to be like, okay, let's make this the robot in the movie. What I love about TARS is he has this 90% honesty programming. And it kind of relates back to 2001 Space Odyssey with HAL 9000, which the ship's computer... If that had the programming like that as well, maybe that maybe that computer doesn't have the ability. If if it had the ability ability to lie and overcome problems when he interacts with humans, maybe he doesn't turn on human beings and try to take over the mission and kill them. That's that's a good point because the reason why Hal malfunctions is because he has to keep uh, information from the astronauts at the order of of NASA. And that's what causes like his programming to malfunction. To, to malfunction he doesn't like understand how to, how to lie or do it. Yeah. All right. That wraps our episode on Interstellar, written and directed by Christopher Nolan, also written by Jonathan Nolan. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Be sure to go to Raiders of the Lost Podcast.com to check out all of our merch, our movie posters, and also become a patron. Get all the cool perks included, like videos, podcast schedules. Um, you get a patron shout out every month if you're a top tier patron and also exclusive giveaways take care everyone thank you for watching raiders of the lost podcast hit that subscribe button and notification bell listen to the audio formats of raiders of the lost podcast on spotify apple podcasts google podcasts and wherever you listen to podcasts new episodes every monday and thursday support us on patreon at patreon.com slash raiders of the lost podcast